You want to guess what chapter we're in today in the book of 1 Corinthians? Uh, We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I invite you to follow with me, find your place there with me. We'll be reading from that passage in a little while, and when we read from it, I want you to be able to follow along with me today. Let's bow our heads together for a moment of prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning. We've been worshiping you in music. Now we come to worship you in the word. We come to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, I yield myself to you. I'm an imperfect vessel. And Lord, I pray that you will work through me and speak through me in spite of my imperfections. And Lord, I pray for all of those that are gathered here, those that are watching us live. I pray, Lord, that their hearts will be open today. Lord, today's subject is so serious, it's so significant, it's so important, and it's not one that we often consider, but that we have to consider. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you'll help us today to recognize that sometimes we as believers are going to stand out and not fit in, and the result of that is that we, uh, we bring about persecution, not intentionally, But because of our standing out, we bring persecution. But I pray, Lord God, that you'll help us to recognize that we should stand firm and true in a day of compromise everywhere. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. A number of years ago, when the governor of Massachusetts was on the campaign trail trying to be Re-elected for the second time, he was attending all of these different events, and one of them was a special dinner. So he got in line at this dinner. It was one of those where you pass by, and they put the food on your plate, and he got to the lady who was serving the chicken, and she placed one piece of chicken on his place, and then she turned to the next person in the line. Well, the governor boldly asked her and said, May I have a second piece of chicken? And the lady replied, Sorry, only one per person. You know anybody like that in our church? (laughs) Sorry, only one per person. The governor responded, Do you know who I am? And the the lady replied, No, I, I don't know who you are. The governor then proudly said, I am the governor of this state. Please give me another piece of chicken. And the lady asked, do you know who I am? And the governor replied, no. And the lady replied, well, I am the person in charge of the chicken. Please move along, sir. I tell you that story because sometimes we get full of ourselves, don't we? We somehow think, as you hear it sometimes termed, that we're all that. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I have? Do you know who I know? And we think that people should treat us differently because of those kinds of things, that we are in an elevated condition, in an elevated position, and consequently, we should have special privileges above everybody else. I don't know if you know what that's called, but I think probably most of you do. Uh, It's a little word that's spelled P-R-I-D-E. It's called pride. Pride. You heard that word? Uh, Pride has a tendency to rise up in any of our hearts and often in all of our hearts And we have to deal with it because we think we're somebody. We think we're all that. And people should notice who we are. And people should move because we're there. And they should act because we say. And that kind of pride is what had crept into the Corinthian church. And it was killing their church. May I say that that kind of pride will kill you. And it will kill our church. But that's the kind of pride that was happening in this Corinthian congregation where they thought they were somebody, that they were all that. That do you know who we are? Don't you understand we are the Corinthians? 
You see, the Corinthians didn't think much of a person who was humble. As a matter of fact, humility wasn't even a virtue to them. In that particular culture, in that particular time, or at that particular time, humility wasn't looked on as a virtue. It was viewed as a sign of weakness rather than a sign of strength. What they sought more than anything else was to have superiority over others. Superiority over others. But you realize that humility is all over the pages of your Bible. Having a humble spirit is all over the pages of your Bible. I mean, some of the central characters of Scripture demonstrate for us these notable people demonstrate for us some of the most, some of the most uh, visible humility before the Almighty God. Think for a moment about Abraham. You talk to a Jewish man or a woman, and every one of them will love to talk to you about Abraham. He is, if you will, the father of the Jewish nation. And yet, when he was talking to the angel of the Lord, and he was talking about his family that was down in Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family, and they were talking about sparing that city. Abraham said, then Abraham answered and said, indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. And here this great man, you find him humbling himself before the Lord. Or think of Jacob. A little later down the lineage, you find Jacob. From Jacob comes the 12 tribes of Israel. All of the people of Israel want to be able to trace their heritage back to one of these 12 tribes. And in Genesis chapter 32 and verse 10, Jacob said, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. A man who was demonstrating and portraying the humility that God wants all of us to have. Or consider Moses, the man that God will ultimately choose and did ultimately choose to lead the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt and take them to the promised land. And you remember the burning bush, don't you? And God calling him and say, you're going to lead these Jews. You're going to take my people. You're going to lead them to the promised land. And what did Moses say in Exodus 3.11? He said, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Or consider for a moment, a little later in history, you come to a man by the name of Gideon. The Midianites were attacking the people of Israel. They were stealing their food. They were, they were, they were terrorizing the people. And God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, I'm going to use you to lead my people in victory over the Midianites. But in Judges chapter 6, verse 15, it says, So he said to him, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And you see a man in his humility. I could read you verses about Isaiah or about Jeremiah. But let me bring you to the New Testament. Let me stop for a moment and talk to you about the man who is a relative of, uh, of Jesus and who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, about whom Jesus says there is no greater prophet than this man. There's been no greater prophet than this man, John the Baptist. Listen to what John the Baptist said in John 1.27. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandals, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. I'm not even worthy to take his shoes off his feet. Such utter humility. I could tell you about what it says about Paul and his humility, but I can't think of a greater example of the kind of humility that is really the display of the strength that God talks about than Jesus Christ himself. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. When you think that you're all that sometime, 
when you think you're really somebody and that people ought to be treating you differently than other people because of what you have or because of who you are or because of where you live or some other means of your superiority over other people so that you can look down on others. Let me just take you for a moment to that upper room where Jesus observed that final meal with his disciples and you watch Jesus taking the towel and the basin of water and getting down on his knees and washing his disciples' feet. Or go with me for a moment out to the Garden of Gethsemane and watch as Jesus goes into the heart of that garden and he falls down and begins to pray and he sweats drops of blood until the betrayer, Judas, brings a body of people up to take him under arrest. And you see his utter humility. Or let me take you just outside the city of Jerusalem, outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha. And I want you to see a man hanging on a tree. He's hardly recognizable as a man anymore. There are all kinds of insults that are being hurled at him, one after another. They're mocking him. They have beaten him. They have nailed him to that cross, nailed him to that tree, and he hangs in the shame of our sins, hanging on that tree, suffering a death that we rightfully should suffer, the separation from God forever he takes on himself and pays a penalty for our sins. You say, Pastor, are you saying to me that I should be a humble person? If you hadn't got that yet, you sort of need to get with the sermon here. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. This pastor needs to be humble. These people need to be humble. Those of us who name the name of Jesus Christ need to be humble. Because when we get lifted in pride, we become like the Corinthian believers. And we bring that pride into the church. And in the church, we begin exalting people. We begin exalting preferences. We begin saying, I want my way over his way or her way. And we begin demanding our rights. And that's what was happening at the church at Corinth. A little bit later, you'll see this pride in the Corinthians worked out. As we go through this book, you'll see it worked out. When they were drinking and eating whatever they wanted, no matter how much it hurt somebody else. Or when they treated others however they wanted, in spite of their, their ability to have helped them rather than hurt them. Or you'll see it worked out in their acts of immorality, living any way that they wanted and a number of other things, you see their pride being worked out in the congregation, and it brings this church into conflict. Pride, the proverb says, goes before. Pride is at the heart, proverb says, of every argument that we have, every disagreement where we're fussing and fuming and want to exalt ourselves over others. It's pride. As a matter of fact, some of you need to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's keeping you from coming to faith in Jesus is pride. It's pride. You're not willing to believe in Christ to be your personal Savior because you think you know more. You understand more. You comprehend more. You, you could never believe those kinds of details. You could never believe those kinds of things about what the Bible says. And your pride is keeping you out of a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and your pride is going to keep you out of heaven. As a matter of fact, the sin, other than unbelief, the sin that will keep more people out of heaven than any other sin is the sin of pride. But here you are, the city of Corinth. I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Paul, and they were all seeking the superiority over the other. They were all saying, you should pay attention to me and ignore everybody else because I'm all that. Do you understand who we are? Do you understand what my group represents? Do you comprehend how wonderful our leader is? 
and they were exalting others in their arrogance, exalting themselves in their arrogance, and the result was that it was creating terrible conflict within the church. So we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and Paul says, wait a minute. You shouldn't be acting in this fashion. You shouldn't be behaving in this way. As a matter of fact, you're exalting speakers and leaders in the church to a position they don't they shouldn't, write, they shouldn't be having, they don't rightly deserve. And in the process, you're causing conflict amongst yourselves. And he begins to say, when you think about us, that's Apollos and Cephas and Peter. Or, and or Cephas and Peter are the same, but Apollos and Cephas, Peter, or Paul, he says, you need to think differently about us. He begins in verse 1. He says, let a man so consider us. Remember, they've been arguing. They've been fussing about who's the greatest, who has the best group, who is superior to the others, who has the better leader than the others have. And Paul comes in verse 1 and he says, let a man so consider us. When you think about us, you shouldn't be thinking about us the way you're thinking of us. Instead, you should be thinking about us as servants of Christ. And if you're keeping the outline from the very first message in this passage, we talked about devoted servants. The word servant refers to somebody who takes hold of an oar in the very belly of a ship with a group of other men and they're slaves. They're not up on the deck. They're not sailors. They're not officers. They're not the captain of the ship. They're down there just as the drum is beat. They're pulling on the oar, moving that ship forward, sometimes moving faster as they pull harder as they're commanded to do so. And God says we're to be devoted servants. I'm not going to go back and re-preach that message. But when you think about us, Paul says, you should think about us like those under oarsmen, like those under rowers. He goes on and he says, and when you think about us, you should think about us as stewards of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God, at the core of the mysteries of God is the gospel itself. How mankind will be made right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. But he says, we've been made stewards of that. And I told you that we have to be dependable stewards. Dependable stewards. What's required of a of a steward. It is that he be found, what's the last word? Faithful, dependable. You don't have to wonder, is he going to show up today? Is he going to be here on time? Is he going to do his job? Is he going to finish what he was given to do? Is he going to stay the entire length of time that he's supposed to stay? You don't have to wonder about those kinds of things because what's been entrusted to him, he will be faithful to it. And we talked about the importance of being a dependable steward. But what was going on in the church was that they were judging out of their pride some to be more important than others. Well, you're, you're more important over here than these over here. You're more important here than these right here because you follow this person or you follow that person or you follow that person and it turns them one against the other. And Paul says, you should stop evaluating us like that. We are servants. We are mere stewards of what God has placed in our care. And the fact of the matter is, how you judge me really doesn't matter. Look at it, verse 3. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, he says, I don't even judge myself. In other words, I don't even judge myself to be all that I think that I am because I can't, I can't access all of the recesses of my heart to know everything that's going on deep within me. But he, said, he goes on in verse 4. He says, for I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. You understand that one day we're all going to stand before Jesus Christ to give an account to him? It's called the judgment seat of Christ. It doesn't determine whether we get into heaven or not. It determines whether we are rewarded in heaven or not. And he's not judging our sins at that moment. He's judging our works at that moment. 
And he says, it's not for you to judge whether I should be exalted or not, whether I should be praised or not. I don't even look at myself and judge myself because the reality is I don't always know. My motives sometimes can be, could be mixed. I'm waiting for the Lord himself, who is the only righteous judge, to judge me and determine what reward I should deserve. You notice verse 5, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. Now what's going to happen when the Lord comes and we stand at that judgment? Who will bring, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts? Wow. Do you realize that that judgment, all of those ulterior motives are going to be revealed and exposed? I'm just doing it for the money. I'm just doing it for the fame. I'm just doing it to get ahead of everybody else. I'm just doing it, and you have some other ulterior motive. Jesus will be able to expose and know the difference between these ulterior motives, and he'll be able to provide a righteous judgment so that you are rewarded properly. And what happens when that occurs, when you are rewarded properly at the end of verse 5? Then each one's praise will come from God. And isn't that the praise we want? Isn't that who we want to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so Paul says in verse 6, I'm telling you this and I'm using Apollos and myself as examples. In essence, what he's going to say is, I could point out who I'm talking about. I could name names if I needed to name names, but I've chosen not to name names here. What I've chosen to do is to use Apollos and myself as examples of how we have to humble ourselves, how you have to humble yourself and wait for the time that you stand before Christ on your own. He says in verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. I've taken this whole, this whole body of information and I've applied it to myself and I've applied it to Apollos. And why have I done that? That you may learn where? In us, not to think beyond what is written. What is written? That you should only glory in the Lord. That you shouldn't glory in anything else other than the Lord. That none of you may be, here it is, we looked at this word in the past, puffed up on behalf of, and here's what happens when pride enters, one against the other. And Paul says your pride is eating you alive. Your church, it's eating your church alive. It's destroying you from within. It's a cancer in the body of Christ that's destroying you. Listen to me. Look at Paul. Look at Apollos. Look at the two of us. Look, we humble ourselves. We're servants. We're stewards, as we're going to learn in a moment. We're spectacles. Stop exalting yourself. Stop thinking you're somebody. Stop walking around arrogantly over everybody else, treating others like you're better than them. As a matter of fact, with three words, three three words, in verse 7, he's going to poke, an, he's going to poke a hole in their, their prideful balloon. I don't know if you need a missile to blow, to, to blow up a balloon or not. <laughs> Seems like an awful expensive thing, four or $500,000 to let the air out of a balloon. Paul's going to do it with three words. The words who, the, words, the word what, and the word why, notice it, verse 7, for who makes you different from another? The answer to that is God. Why are there distinctions amongst us? Did God intend for us all to be exactly alike? Didn't he give us all different giftedness? Doesn't he give us all different responsibilities and all different tasks that were supposed to be fulfilled? So why are you feeling so proud in yourself? Who gave you what you have anyway? God did. He goes on, and what do you have that you did not receive? I mean, look around yourself. All the things you say you've got, all this stuff that you think you're so proud in and proud about. Let me ask you a question. Where did that come from? 
It came from God, didn't it? And what do you have that you did not receive? There's nothing that they had that they didn't receive. Now, if you indeed, you did indeed receive it, now here comes the third word, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why do you walk around saying, oh, God's favored me over them? This preacher's better than that preacher, and that preacher's better than that preacher, and we're sort of rallying around our favorite ones, and we're exalting them to a place they shouldn't rightfully be given because it belongs only to Jesus Christ because all of us who are serving the Lord Jesus Christ are servants. We are stewards. We are spectacles. Humble yourself. You proud, arrogant Corinthians, And with three words, he lets the air out of their balloon of pride. Isn't that amazing? Don't you hate it when your balloon of pride is flying really high and somebody comes and deflates it? Then he gets sarcastic. Do you realize that there is sarcasm in the scripture? Spiritual sarcasm? Verse 8, you are already full In other words, he's using a sarcastic tone. The Greek text indicates he's using a sarcastic tone at this moment. And that is, they think of themselves as being self-satisfied. You're already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. Excuse me, you are already full. That's self-satisfied. You are already rich. That is self-sufficient. And then he says, you have reigned as kings without us. That's self-seeking. And indeed, he says, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. If it was true, all you think about yourself and all you say about yourself and all you hold to be true about yourself, that you are all that, then the reality is we would be right there with you, reigning with you, but the reality is that we are not there. And then he says, verse 9, for I think that God has displayed us the apostles last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made not only servants, not only stewards, but we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. If you're keeping an outline, writing down the outline, it's a devoted servant, a dependable steward, and this is a determined spectacle. You see the little word spectacle? It refers to the theaters of that day, the the amphitheaters of of that day. You find the word used in Acts chapter 19 when Paul has been preaching in Ephesus and the people are all stirred up and they're unhappy about what Paul has been preaching and about the people being converted to Christ. And they start grabbing the people related to and who are apart with the Apostle Paul, and they pull them into Acts 19, 29, and 31. They pull them into the theater. What is the theater? Got a couple of pictures. That's the theater at Pergamum. You see it cut into the hillside? People will gather in that spectacle, in that theater, And they will watch whatever it is that's going on down here in the floor. Uh, The more common picture that we're used to is one that it looks like this in Rome. That's that theater, that place of spectacle, that place that you go for entertainment. And Paul says, you know what we are? We're not just servants with a hand on the oar pulling as hard as we can. Our stewards who own nothing but are called to manage what's been given to us, we are, in fact, spectacles. We are the entertainment down here on the floor that everybody comes to look at and to watch. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, when he talks about being a spectacle, he's talking about Christians being thrown to the wild animals, Uh, Christians being run through by a spear, by a Roman gladiator. He's talking about going into that theater, being the entertainment for the people that have gathered in this great gathering. And by the way, the theater in Corinth would seat 18,000 people. 18,000 people. 
and we are the ones that are down here on the floor, and we are the ones that are the entertainment. But the entertainment is not pleasant entertainment. The entertainment is our persecution and even our death for being a follower of Jesus Christ. This word also has an in, another indication to it. When a, when a general would win a great victory on behalf of his country, he would have a triumph parade. And you'd have everybody in this parade, people lined up along the streets. They're there to, they're there to cheer on these victors from their own country, their own city, who's won this great victory. And you got all of these different people that are in line as you walk through the street. But in the midst of that crowd, there are the captured ones, the captured soldiers that are chained to one another and chained to a chariot. As they're Walking along, people will hurl insults at them and people will mock them and people will laugh at them. They even threw feces at them. Paul says, when you think about us, I want to remind you of something. We are servants. We humble ourselves. We are stewards we don't own anything. We're managing what God has entrusted to us. And we are spectacles. We are the entertainment for the world to come and look at and to mock and laugh at and persecute. Look what he goes on to say, verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. Again, you hear some of the sarcasm. We're fools for Christ, though you think you're wise. We're weak, though you think you're so strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Now notice the next phrase, to this present hour, to the present hour. To, to this very moment, as I'm writing these words, to the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. Now look, we have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things. And here's two more important words, until now, to the present hour, until now, this is still going on. We've been made the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things. The filth, the word filth and offscouring, they're synonyms of one another in the Greek text. They, they refer to what you scrape off of something else. Think of walking through mud and your shoes becoming caked in mud, as I've done when I've gone to a funeral where the grass was wet and the mud was everywhere. And the mud is caked all over you and you have to scrape it off your shoes What's scraped off your shoes, Paul says, that's what we are to this world. What's scraped off your plate that nobody else wants, that's thrown out into the trash, that's what everybody, that's what everybody thinks of us. We're the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things, even to this very moment. I hope you understand what I'm saying to you. Paul was saying, while you Corinthians are exalting yourself and exalting your speakers and walking around in your arrogance and your pride, thinking you're all that and thinking you're really somebody and that your group is better than the other group and that group is worse than your group, the reality is that you have lost sight of who we are and who you are supposed to be. We are servants and we are stewards and we are spectacles and you're to follow. Imitate me a little later, he says in the same chapter. Imitate me. You're supposed to be servants and you're supposed to be stewards and you're supposed to be the spectacle. In other words, he's telling us that the reality is persecution is something we should get used to. Being looked at as little more than a servant and a steward in a spectacle is something that we should get used to in the world in which we live. Do you realize that the Bible speaks about the persecution against believers 
all over the pages from Old Testament to New Testament. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to Psalm 29, verse 27. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous. Now listen. And he who is upright in the way, he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. Should we expect that in the world in which we live, we're going to be disliked at times, that we're going to be persecuted, that we're going to be hated, that we're going to be maligned? Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen to what Jesus said in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates me, if the world hates you, excuse me, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. When I read that, it convicts me every single time. Because he says, if you're of the world, the world will love you. But if you're not of the world, as I'm not of the world, then you're going to have the reprisals of the world against you. That's what he says. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Look, I'm not suggesting that we go out looking for persecution. I'm not suggesting that we go out seeking persecution, but I'm suggesting that if you live in the manner that the Apostle Paul was living in humility before God to be a servant in his hands, a steward of what he's entrusted to you, that ultimately the result is going to be that you will ultimately be a spectacle to the world around you. Paul told Timothy, all that live godly in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the words? All that live godly in Christ Jesus. Do you know the next words? Shall, not might, shall suffer persecution. We shouldn't think it a strange thing when the world looks at us and doesn't understand us doesn't always appreciate, uh, appreciate us, doesn't want to hear us, wants us to be pushed back into a corner and silence. Do whatever you want within the walls of your church. Just don't take it outside those walls. You're not welcome in your opinion and your viewpoint is not welcome outside the walls of your church. There are a lot of examples of what I'm talking about. They're private Christian business owners that have been dragged to court, targeted for destruction by the LGBTQ plus movement. The IRS was caught targeting Christian nonprofits. In 2011, the Department of Human and Health, uh, Health and Human Services relentlessly prosecuted the Christian charity Little Sisters of the Poor because they didn't want to pay for the abortifacent uh, contraceptives a case which they ultimately won in the Supreme Court. Or think of Jack Phillips, the baker, who's been harassed for more than a decade. Or Baronel Stutzman, who was a florist, who was eventually forced into retirement. Or just consider a case that's happened in the last year or so. Coach Joe Kennedy. He just went out the middle of the football field and knelt down. He didn't ask anybody else to go with him. He was exercising his own free uh, right, his own right as an American citizen, his uh, right to free speech, and to the exercise of religion, walk out to the middle of the football field, kneel down, and thank God. The result was he gets fired from his job. It took him seven years to fight the persecution against him, and finally the Supreme Court ruled in his favor. And listen to what they said. A government entity sought to punish an individual for engaging in a brief, quiet, personal religious observance doubly protected by the free exercise and free speech clauses of the First Amendment. The Constitution neither mandates nor tolerates that kind of discrimination. But if you haven't noticed, there are a lot of Christians that will never get promoted past a certain point at the major corporation's because they hold to a biblical ethic. The crisis pregnancy centers are under attack ever since the Dobbs decision, even before when it was leaked. 
They've been threatened. They've been vandalized. They've been firebombed. If you go to college and you're out with your faith, everybody else is out with everything else. If you're out with your faith, you'll be ostracized and laughed at in politics, in business, and even in your neighborhood. If you hold to the truth and to your Christian faith, you're going to be persecuted. Will you humble yourself? Will you humble yourself? A lot of people have just decided we'll be secret disciples. We'll just make sure that nobody knows that we believe these things. We won't talk of them. We won't speak of them. We'll keep them quiet. We won't let anybody else. We will look as much like the world as we can. We will sound as much like the world as we can because we don't want to stand out. We want to blend in. Consequently, we have churches today that look like the world and act like the world and talk like the world and believe like the world and really just are the world. The world philosophy around us. I mean, will you stand no matter the cost? If the boss says you have to affirm something to keep your job, will you affirm it even if it's against your faith and against what you believe? Are you humble enough to say, I am going to stand with Christ and his word. I'm not going to be ashamed of him or what he teaches. Or will you buckle like so many others have done? I'm reminded of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar made this golden statue, and he said, when the music plays, everybody has to fall down and worship this statue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these who had been taken from Israel and been transplanted into, into Babylon so that they could become, they, they could become uh, adjusted to the culture of the Babylonians and learn the speech of the Babylonians and get names like the Babylonians and sort of you know, just infiltrate and become a part of the Babylonian culture. And when Nebuchadnezzar said, Will you, when, when, you see that, uh, when you see that golden statue, you have to bow down And if you don't, we'll throw you in the fiery furnace. You remember that story? Do you remember what happened? After the king tells them that the next time the music plays, you will bow or you will be burned. Listen to what they say, verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, that is to be thrown into the fire, God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. That would be okay if that was the end of the story. If I'm guaranteed that I'm going to get out of the fire, that's okay. But they go on. Verse 18, but if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And they stood, and guess who stood with them in the fire? They look inside, and there's not three men. How many are there? There are four. But here are these proud Corinthians. Don't you know who we are? Don't you understand? We have all this giftedness. Don't you understand that we are God's gift to this community? Don't you understand? We are all that. We are something. We exalt these people over others. We fight with one another over this pride that we have amongst ourselves. And Paul says, I'm giving you an example. I'm using Paul and I'm using myself and Apollos as an example. I could point out who it is that's doing this. I'm just going to use us. We humble ourselves to be servants, acknowledging that as servants, we are stewards, even if it means becoming a spectacle in the process of following Jesus Christ. I want to give you three application points and I'm going to close. And these three application points take us back through the three points that I've given to you. 
that we are devoted servants, dependable stewards are to be, devoted servants, dependable stewards, and determined spectacles. Why determined? <laughs> can, you, can you figure out why the, why the word determined? Because when they turn on you, if you're not determined that you're going to follow Jesus, you will turn back. Application number one, seek humility, not honor. That's devoted servants. Seek humility, not honor. There's a lot of us today that are pushing ourselves forward. Hey, do you know who I am? Don't you see me? I am somebody. Pay attention to me. I want the limelight on me. Put the spotlight on me. Paul says you should seek humility, not honor. Number two, you should seek faithfulness, not fortune. Well, I want to have something for myself. I want to be wealthy. I want to be rich. And the Lord says, I want you to be a dependable steward. Seek faithfulness, not fortune. Do you show up to church on time? Do you run out as fast as the service is over? Do you lead your life group the way you should lead it? Do you come to the life group dependably and responsibly? Do you show up to church once a month? Do you know that that's the new average attendance in America today? You are now considered a, a regular attender of church services if you're there once a month. Or do you show up every time the doors are open, Sunday morning and Sunday night, and in your life groups through the course of the week? We don't need a little bit of biblical teaching. We need a whole lot of biblical teaching. We don't need a little bit of fellowship. We need a whole lot of fellowship. Seek faithfulness, not fortune. Listen to me, all the young people here, you're, you're looking at your career in the future. Whatever job you get first, stop thinking about the next position you're going to try for and determine I am going to be the best that I can be at the, at the task that's given to me, and I'm going to become the most faithful employee they have. Wouldn't that be great? Let me tell you where you end up. You'll end up running the company. Because most people want a paycheck without doing anything or doing as little as possible. Seek faithfulness, not fortune. And number three, what applies to this point about being spectacled? Seek significance. Seek significance, not safety. I want to be safe. I want to be safe. I want my kids to be safe. Some of us won't let our kids go on missions trips because we're afraid for their safety. We need to seek significance, not safety. There's a pastor that related a story about a his teenage daughter concerning this whole matter of significance. So listen to it. He writes, During her junior year of high school, Jody struggled to find her own faith. She wanted to know if everything she had been taught was true and if Jesus Christ was real. Not an uncommon thing for young people to do. She was going down a difficult path, but God pursued her. Eventually, she found her own faith, when she graduated from high school, she said she didn't want to go to college right away. Instead, she wanted to go to Haiti for a year and help people with a medical mission. I asked, are you sure you want to do this? Haiti is 3,000 miles away from home. It's poor, has AIDS, and is controlled by the voodoo religion. I know, she said, but I feel like God wants me to go and help those people. The father replied, okay. If that's what you want to do, we'll make it happen. One of the hardest days of my life, he says, was putting my daughter on an airplane and watching her take off, not knowing if I would ever communicate with her again. One night, I received an email from Jody. She wrote that it had been the most remarkable night of her life. She had been called to deliver a baby in a hut. She was 18 years old in a third world country with a naked, screaming, pregnant woman. A woman from, a, from the voodoo religion walked into the hut dressed in red and blue voodoo garb and began chanting some voodoo incantation in Creole. She put some kind of oil on the lady's head and then on her belly and chanted a Creole spell. He says, Jody did not know what to do. She stood at the head of the woman and started singing, 
Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Jody said that the voodoo lady became completely unhinged and ran out of the hut. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And then Jody wrote, that night I knew that that baby was going to be born with the blessing of God and not the curse of Satan. As I read her email, I thought, the pastor says, why are you in a hut with a voodoo woman? Get on a plane tomorrow. But then my heart beat so fast for her as her brother in Christ. I thought, way to go, Jody. Way to make a difference with your life. Way to put your life in the hands of the destiny maker. Way to make a splash. Who knows, he says, who that little baby she delivered that night is going to grow up to become and who that person is going to touch, all because of one courageous girl who said, okay, God, I want to put my life in your hands. I want to make a difference. Seek significance, not safety. Seek significance, not safety. Paul says, I want you to imitate me. I want you to become servants. I want you to be stewards, even if it means becoming a spectacle, taken to an arena somewhere, mocked, and even killed. I want you to humble yourself. Stop exalting us. Stop your pride of arguing with each other. And recognize that you are to be devoted servants and dependable stewards and determined spectacles who are seeking significance over safety. And let God change the world with your life. 